song. I appreciate the ladies singing for us tonight. How many of you brought your Bible with you? Will you hold up the Bible all over the building tonight? I want to ask you, if you will, uh, to join me tonight in the book of 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13, page number 405, if you have an old Schofield Bible. And I'd like to read some verses. If you remember last week, we were in this chapter. And I told you this week, I wanted to go back and finish this thing up. And so uh, I hope you'll bear with me for just a moment. There's really a great truth in this chapter that I'd like to share with you tonight from the Word of God. Uh, yeah, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Lord unto Bethel. Bethel, that's the house of God. Beth is house. El, suffix El, is an, it means God. House of God. So this man of God, by the word of God, has came unto Bethel, the house of God. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And he, the man of God, cried against the altar in the word of the Lord. Now jump down to verse 4. And it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which had cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Lay hold on him, lay hold on the man of God. And his hand, which he put forth against him, against the man of God, dried up, so that he could not pull it again in again to him. The altar also was rent, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored me again. And the man of God besought the Lord, and the king's hand was restored him again, and it became as it was before. And the king said unto the man of God, Come home with me, and refresh thyself, and I'll give thee a reward. And the man of God said unto the king, If thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. So he went another way, and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. Verse 20, verse 11, Now there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel, the words which he had spoken unto the king, them they told also to their father. And their father said unto him, What way went he? For his sons had seen what way the man of God went, which came from Judah. And he said unto his sons, Saddle me the ass. So they saddled him the ass, and he rode thereon, and went after the man of God, and found him sitting under an oak. And he said unto him, Art thou the man of God that camest from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said unto him, Come home with me, and eat bread. And he said, the, the prophet said, I may not return with thee, nor go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with thee in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, Thou shalt eat no bread nor drink water there, nor turn again to, to go by the way that thou camest. And he said, the old prophet now said, I am a prophet also as thou art. And an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied unto him. So he went back. Uh, he went back with him and did eat bread in his house and drank water. And it came to pass as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came uh, unto the prophet that brought him back. 
And he cried unto the man of God that came from Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, for as much as thou hast disobeyed the mouth of the Lord, and hast not kept thy, uh, the commandment which the Lord thy God commanded thee, but camest back, and hast eaten bread and drunk water in this place, of the which the Lord did say to thee, Eat no bread and drink no water, thy carcass shall not come again unto the sepulcher of thy fathers. And it came to pass, after he had eaten bread and, and after he had drunk, that he saddled for him the ass to wit, for the prophet whom he had brought, uh, for the prophet whom he brought back. And when he was gone, a lion met him, met this prophet, by the way, and slew him, and his carcass was cast in the way. And the ass stood by it. The lion also stood by the carcass. And behold, men passed by and saw the carcass cast in the way, and the lion standing by the carcass. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. And when the prophet that brought him back from the way thereof, he said... It is the man of God who was disobedient unto the word of the Lord. Therefore hath the Lord delivered him unto the line which had torn him and slain him according to the word of the Lord which he spake. Did you get all that? Did you get all that? I'm telling you, this is a great story. And I want to go back tonight now and break it apart. All right, let's pray. Father, bless your word. Speak to our hearts tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you think back to last Sunday evening, then you may recall that I spent the service last Sunday night kind of opening up this chapter, 1 Kings chapter number 13. I told you then, and I'll tell you it again tonight, this is one of the chapters in the Bible that has always bothered me. Now, I want to tell you right up front that I don't think God was wrong in how things worked out. I don't think God's been, ever been wrong about anything. And who in the world am I to say that God should have done this or done that differently because God's ways are higher and holier and His thoughts are higher and holier than our thoughts. But i got to tell you, when I read this chapter, I've always struggled with what happened to the prophet, to the man of God in this chapter. Now last week, if you remember, I told you there are five different groups of people or five people that are mentioned in this chapter. First of all, there's King Jeroboam. Look back in verse number 1, uh, verse 2, the Bible. The Bible said that there was a, a, a king over the northern kingdom of Israel by the name of Jeroboam. He is the one who was the first king after the nation of Israel split under the leadership of... He set up a golden calf in Bethel and built an altar for it. And he said to the people of the northern kingdom, okay, this is now the God that you and I are going to serve. And he used all that, he based all that on the, on the thought of convenience. Look back up into chapter 12, if you will, in verse 28. And the Bible said in verse 28, whereupon, whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. In other words, what he's saying is, look, man, we don't want to inconvenience ourselves. Let's just just make us our own God, set our own God up, and we don't have to travel all the way down, pack everything up, and move everything down there. We'll just have our own God up here in the north. And that's what happened here. The northern kingdom set up this false God from the very start in, of all places, Bethel, the house of God, and he built an altar there for that golden calf. 
Now, that's King Jeroboam. Now, as you might well expect, boy, God got upset about that. God was highly displeased with what the king had done, so now we need to meet the next person in this story, and that's the man of God. What God did is called an old boy out of the south, out of southern uh, Judah, uh, down, from, down south, and called him to go up north and, uh, and to confront the king in Bethel over this false god that he has set up. Boy, I want to tell you something. When that preacher, that prophet came out of the south and he came up north, you talk about a day to remember in the house of God. It was a service people remembered for a long time afterward because the Bible said in verse 2 that that old man of God came up there and started crying against the altar that that king had set up, that old false god that he had set up. And the Bible said when he started preaching against it, the altar just opened it up of its own accord and the ashes started pouring out. Well, the king got mad, took his hand, stretched it forth to grab a hold of the man of God, and God smote the, the hand of the king, and he couldn't even use it anymore. He couldn't even bring it again, paralyze his hand. And the king said to the preacher, said, pray for me that the Lord will touch me. And God did just that. God made his hand whole again, and he, and he was able to use it once again. Well, I want to tell you something. That's a pretty memorable day at the house of God. What if we had come in here this morning? What if you go to work in the morning and somebody said, well, how'd your services go yesterday? Oh, man. You ought to have been there. That preacher got up. I'm telling you, he is preaching against everything, and the altar just opened up, spilled out a bunch of ashes. Somebody got mad at the preacher, tried to grab him, and God smote his hand. Then the preacher prayed for him, and God healed his hand. You talk about a memorable day in the house of God. That would be a day to remember for a long, long time. Then we meet the third group. That is the sons, verse, 20, uh, verse 11, uh, of this old prophet. Now the sons of the prophet was there. Now stay with me. These sons of the prophet, they ain't been around nothing like that before. All they had was this dead, lifeless religion. And when they went to church that day, and I mean they saw that preacher up there preaching against something, and the king trying to grab a hold of him, and God smiting his hand, and then God healing him, and the altar just opened up, and the ashes pouring out. I mean they were absolutely amazed by what had went on at the house of God that Day, I mean, man, they were tore. Their eyes, were, they were bug-eyed watching all that because they ain't been around nothing like that before. They hadn't seen God work. They hadn't seen the power of God move in a service. And by the way, we ought to pray constantly for the power of God to move in our church. Hey, we got a generation of little children coming up. And listen, this world's telling us there ain't nothing to this stuff. It's hocus-pocus. It's abracadabra. It's just magic, friend. They got to see something that's real once again. And we ought to pray for the touch and the power of God and for God to move in the church again. Boy, I tell you, these prophets, these sons, they were bug-eyed and they went home and they started telling the old prophet about what had happened. That's the fourth person. Well, the old prophet, when he hears about all that's happened, I mean, evidently he's a little bit jealous over all that, about all that. He's upset because, you know, really, he should have been the one up there. He's from the north anyway. He should have been the low-down Yankee that was up there crying against that. Can I have an amen? He should have been the one up there at the house of God preaching against all that stuff, but he wasn't saying anything about it. When them boys come home and said, Daddy, you ought to have been in church today. I mean, it was unbelievable. The preacher preached. The king got mad. I mean, God, yeah, it was just unbelievable. He gets jealous about all that. And he says, hey, go get the car, boys. Saddle up the donkey. And he takes off after the man of God. And he says to the man of God, hey, I want you to come home and eat bread 
and drink water. Now, God had already given him a commandment. Don't you eat bread. Don't you drink water with anybody up here in this place. Have nothing to do with this crowd. That old man of God said, hey, come home with me and eat some bread, drink. And guess what that young prophet does? He goes home with that old king. He eats some bread. He drinks some water. And right after he departs from that old prophet's house, a lion off in the distance is roaring. And it didn't long to that old lion. Leaps from the bushes, springs upon that man of God, and kills him. So we got five people. We got the king, we got the man of God, we got the sons of the prophets, we got the old backslidden prophet, and then we got the lion, the only one in the whole story that was obedient to what God wanted him to do. Isn't it a sight when God has to reach into the animal kingdom to get somebody to obey him because a bunch of human people won't do it? Isn't that a sight? So this is a great, a great story. But tonight, I want to talk about this man of God. Let's talk a little bit about it. First of all, I want you to look in our text tonight, and I want to speak, number one, about the call of the man of God. The call of the man of God. Now, when we find there in verse number one that a man of God has come on the scene up north in Bethel, that was not a good sign. I've told you before that any time in the Old Testament when a prophet, a man of God came on the scene, it was never, ever an indication that things were going good. In fact, just the opposite. When a man of God came on the scene, it was always because the nation had drifted away from God. It was a time of apostasy. They were turning away from God, and they were turning toward error. So God called a man of God, a prophet of God, to go up and to confront the atmosphere of that time and the attitude of the people. And by the way, we understand that not only is this northern kingdom in apostasy, but the southern kingdom was in apostasy as well. I mean, you've got to remember that even back before Rehoboam, I'm talking about in the days of Solomon, the southern kingdom had already drifted from the true and the living God to start worshiping false gods just like the northern kingdom had. That's right. You remember Solomon? We're told something about Solomon in 1 Kings 11, verse number 1, and it says this, but Solomon loved many strange women. Strange women. And then we're told this, and it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives... Now, there were 700 wives. 700 wives. Could you imagine? I don't even want to go there. Can you imagine buying 700 bottles of hairspray a week? 700 wives, 300 concubines or fill-ins. 1,000 women. And the Bible said that when Solomon got old a time that he really should have been loving God the most, that these women, these strange women, that they turned his heart away after other gods. And then we read this, verse 7, Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh and the abomination of Moab and the hill that is before Jerusalem and for, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And we read this, and likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burn incense and sacrifice under that. I'm telling you, it was bad up north, but it was bad if not worse down south. I mean, man, down south, Solomon had already turned the hearts of the people from the true and the living God to start worshiping all of these false gods. So one day, here's this young man. 
And he's walking through the streets of Jerusalem. And he sees the altars erected to Molech and, and, uh, and uh, to all Astaroth and to all these false gods. And he gets to thinking to himself, maybe, you know, one of these days, God's going to need a man to confront all this mess. God's going to need a voice in this day to be the voice, the voice for God. And, and, and at that time, that young man purposes, I'll be the one to surrender myself to be the man of God. God burdened his heart. God called him to confront the apostasy and the idolatry that was going on in the nation. But he has no idea what it means to be a man of God. Maybe the biggest question on his heart is this. How can a man of clay become a man of God? You know, that's a good question to ask, isn't it? How in the world can a man of clay, a man of mud? We were talking about this before coming to church tonight. I said, we ain't nothing but mud. How can a man of mud, a man of clay, become a man of God? So I see this old young prophet, and he goes home, and he gets his Bible out, at least what little bit he's got. He didn't have 66 books in an old Schofield King James Bible. All he had was probably the first four or five books or maybe the first five or six books of the Bible. And he goes home and he scratches his head and he's wanting to know how can a man of clay become a man of God? Well, he does what probably anybody would do. He just goes, maybe gets his concordance out and he looks up that phrase, man of God. And he finds out up until this time there's only been the mention two times in the Bible of a man of God. The first mention, the first person that's called a man of God in the Bible was old Moses. Moses was called the man of God. And the only other time prior to this text that somebody's called a man of God is that angel that appeared to, to, uh, to Samson's mom and daddy before Samson was born. That angel was called the man of God. Now he learns two things that must be true if a man of clay is going to be a man of God. Number one, if a man of clay is to be a man of God, first of all, he must repudiate this world. Amen. If a man of God is going to be a true man of God, he's going to have to say no to the things of this world. Moses was the man of God. The Bible called him that. And one of the reasons Moses became a man of God is because Moses said no to the things of Egypt. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24, the Bible said, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer the afflictions with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. You know what Moses did? Moses refused to allow Egypt to squeeze him, to mold him into their culture, into their society. Moses looked at that mess and said, No way, if I'm going to be a man of God, I'm going to have to say no to the things of the world. And I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, it is just as much true today as it was in Moses' day. If we're going to be the men that God has called us to be, we're going to have to say no to the stinking world that we're living in tonight. Refuse to be conformed. Refuse to be squeezed into the mold of the world. I'll tell you what a man of God is. A man of God is somebody who repudiates this stinking world that we're living in. 
I refuse to conform my life to the standards, to the philosophies, to the ideologies of this world. Hey, I'll tell you what, friend. I, I'm not headed the way this world is going. I'm going in a different direction. I'm marching to the beat of a different drum. And I'm going to look at this world and say, if you believe it, I don't believe it. And if you're going, I'm not going. He repudiates this world. But then he represents that world. That old angel that came down and spoke to uh, Moses' mama, I'm sorry, Samson's mama and his daddy, he came down and spoke to them. And angels, as an angel, he's called the man of God. And he represents that world. You know what angels are? Your wife's not an angel. I know you think she is. Angels are males. They're men. There's no female angels. I love you. I bless you. If you're mad at me for saying that, come up after church, apologize, and I'll forgive you. There are, no, there are no female angels in the Bible. There are male angels in the Bible. And every angel in the Bible was an angel that stood in the presence of God and then went about to do whatever God told them to do. They represent that world. I'll tell you what a man of God is. A man of God is somebody who repudiates this world and represents that world. And if there's ever been a day in America that we need some old-fashioned men of God who will say no to this world and represent that world, it's in this day and age in which you and I live. I don't know about you, but I'm about stinking tired of a bunch of preachers that won't stand for anything anymore, and they just cave and give in to everything, and anything and everything goes on in the house of God, and everything's okay. Thank God for the man who still stands up and says no to this world because he represents that world. That's what America needs. More than we need, bless God, a new president in the White House. More than we need a Republican Congress and a Senate. We need some men of God who will stand up with the Word of God and still say no to this world and yes to that world. Yes, sir. That's how a man of clay becomes a man of God. I think Paul picked up on it in the New Testament. And Paul describes it a little bit further when he said this. Here's a way that a man of clay becomes a man of God. First of all, when a man of clay becomes a man of God, he masters his own body. He masters his own body. Look at this verse right here. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. In other words, a man of God is somebody who by the help, the grace, the power, and yielded himself to the Holy Spirit has learned to master his own body. He masters his body, but he also masters his Bible. Look at these verses. All scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished. You may tell you what a man of God is. A man of God is somebody who learned, who has learned to master his own body and a man that has surrendered himself and submitted himself to God and he's trying to master the Bible. I'm going to tell you, we need some men of God like that in these days. So God reached down south. God taps his own boy on the shoulder. He said, I want you to be my prophet. I want you to be my man. I, I, I want you to be my voice. In a day when there's not much of a voice for God, I want you to be my man. I wonder tonight whom God is reaching down in this church and tapping you on the shoulder and saying to you, I want you.
to be my man. I want you to be my voice. I want you to stand for me. In these days of apostasy, God called a man. So I thought about, number one, the call of the man of God. But here's my favorite part. Number two, I want to speak to you about the gall of a man of God. Now, I don't know about you, but this old boy that we're talking about here in this text tonight, I mean, his very first assignment from God was to leave south, go up north. Now, let me just stop and say, man, that's, that's tough. To leave the south and go up north. I mean, that's hard. But not only to leave the south and head up north, but God said, hey, there's a king up there. And he set up his false golden calf up there. And he's telling that whole crowd up there, this is your God, and he's built an altar to worship this false God. Now, boy, you've repudiated the world. You're representing that world. Now, I want you to get up there, and I want you to confront that whole mess. I want you to get up there, and I want you to walk right up there, right on the steps of Bethel, the house of God, when the king's in there, and I want you to confront that rascal about this whole mess that's going on up north. Now, that'd be, that'd be kind of tough. I mean, it takes a little gall to do something like that. That'd be like God telling, telling me, I want you to go up right up at Times Square in New York City. And I want you to stand up there and lift your voice up. And I want you to preach against all that mess that's going on. Furthermore, when you leave there, go to Washington. Get on the steps of the Capitol building. And as them low-down Democrats walk in and out of that place up there, and a few of them Republicans, stand up there and lift your voice up and tell them uh, they're wrong and confront this mess that's going on about the election. And I'm, I'm kidding about that. And confront this mess that is going on in our land. Can I tell you something? Look here. That's going to take some gall. Amen. I mean, that's going to take a little bit of oops fire. That's going to take a little bit of grit. So he walks straight up there. He goes straight up to, to Bethel. And, and there's the king. And there's the golden calf. And there is the altar. And he looks that king right in the eye. He cares nothing whatsoever about tact. He's more interested in contact. God, give us some preachers in America that worry less about tact and more about contact. And he walks straight up there, looks that king right in the eye, and then it happens. His eyes get bloodshot. His face gets red. His veins start bulging, and he erupts like a volcano on the whole mess. He doesn't care anything about making friends or influencing people. I mean, buddy, he has got a call of God in his heart. God has told him to go up there, and the Bible said in simple Bible terminology, verse 2, he cried against the altar of the Lord. I mean, he goes off against all this stuff. Well, you might imagine what it did. It made that old king mad. I mean, that king got so mad. I mean, he said, we got to shut this guy up. He's making us look bad. Furthermore, I don't know about y'all, but I'm leaving church feeling pretty bad today as well. I mean, he's under Holy Ghost conviction. So he tries to do two things to the man of God. Number one, he tries to slay him. Look, at, if you will, at verse number, verse number 4. The Bible said he put forth his hand. I mean, he was going to kill the man of God. He reaches out to grab a hold of the man of God. Evidently, he forgot this verse is in the Bible right here. Look at this one. Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. 
You better be careful what you do to a true man of God. You better be careful what you say or how you act or what you accuse a true man. You better be careful putting your hands on a true man of God because God said, don't you do my prophets no harm. You better not touch mine anointing. In fact, God said that twice in the Bible. Psalms 105 verse 15, God said it again, uh, touch not mine anointed, do my prophets no harm. God said, leave my prophets alone. And he reaches to grab him. And when he reaches to grab that man of God, God said, he's reaching and God said, whoop. And evidently, his hand becomes paralyzed. Because the Bible said there in verse number four that he can't even pull it in again to himself. So now his arm is just drooping by his side. So he says to the man of God, he says, hey, preacher, man, you got to pray for me. I mean, look here at my arm. I tell you, I'm in bad shape. Preacher, pray. And the preacher prays. And God heals his arm. Look again at verse number five. Verse number six. The king's hand was restored whole again as it was before. So now he's tried to slay him. But you can't slay a true man of God. I mean, God's not going to let you till God's through with him. So if he can't slay him, he's going to try to seduce him. Look what happens in our text, verse number 7. Hey, preacher, I tell you what, I could use a man of God like you in my, in my palace. And he says to him, hey, won't you just come home with me and, hey, refresh yourself a little bit. I mean, it's been a hard day up here at the church. And won't you come home? And I tell you what I'll do, I'm going to give you a reward. So if he can't slay him, he's going to try to seduce him. Hey, why don't you come home with me and look. You know, I could use a man of God like you on my, my ministerial staff in the palace. He said, in fact, a man of God with your kind of gall and backbone, I'll tell you what I'd like. I'd like to make you the professor of homiletics at Bethel Bible Baptist Institute. So why don't you come home with me and look, I'll pay you a salary and man, I'll tell you what, I'll take good care of you. I'll put you in palace clothes. You can ride around in a palace buggy. I'll, 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 I'll put you in a prominent position. I'm going to make you somebody, son. Just come on home with me and I will take care of you. You'll have a great future you'll never want for anything. Just come on, go home with me. And the man of God, in verse number 8, looked back at him and said this, and I'm putting this in Forsyth County language, I'm not for sale. <laughs> Don't you appreciate a man of God that looked this world in the eye? I, I remember years ago reading about how that uh, Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, my heart monitor's going off, just bear with me just a minute. I remember years ago that Barnum and Bailey Circus offered a, a great sum of money to Charles Spurgeon if he would come and join their circus. They told, they saw the crowds that Spurgeon was gathering uh, and garnering over in England, and they thought, man, we need a man like this to bring those crowds in. So they sent, made him a great big offer. Spurgeon sent back and said, I'm not for sale. Thank God for the man of God who will stand up and still say to this world, look, it ain't for sale. God has called me. God will take care of me. I care more about what God thinks than I do about what you think. I don't care. You're not going to mess with me. I'm going to say what I want to say. I've got where I, when I sign Bibles now, even if I'm having a bad day, I use the same verse. 
1 Kings 22, 14. What the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. It's not for sale. Thank God for some preachers that's got a little gall. The call of a man of God. The gall of a man of God. And how I wish the story ended here, but it doesn't. So it leads us to a third thought from this, and that is the fall of the man of God. What happened to this man of God? Look in our story, and we're just about through. I wish the story ended with verse number 10, because he's uh, right up to this point, all the way up to verse 10, he's done exactly what the Lord wanted him to do. I mean, I think God is so proud of that preacher. I think God said, boy, now I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to use this boy right here. He's got some gold on him. I mean, went right up there, confronted the king. I mean, the power of God. I mean, well, man, I got, a, I got one here. This is a live one right here. I'm going to use this old boy. But then we come to verse 11. And that old backslidden prophet, he is jealous about everything that is going on at Bethel, at the service that day. He's mad about it. I told you a moment ago, look, if he'd have been where he was supposed to have been, he would have been the man of God up there at the house of God crying against the altar. Can I have an amen? I mean, we already found out this guy ain't what he's supposed to be because he's at home when he should have been up there crying. He's, he's from the north. And a northerner won't listen to a southerner no more than a southerner will listen to a northerner. Maybe they'd have listened to that prophet from up, up north. But I mean, he got mad at the boy from down south. Where, where was the man of God at this whole time? Well, then his boys come on, Daddy, you ought to have been at church today. It was unbelievable. Hey, boys, where'd he go? Well, he went this way. Y'all get the car. It's in the Hebrews, donkeys. In the, in the, Y'all get the car. And he gets in the car and he heads after the man of God. And, and, as, and when he gets to where the man of God is at, and by the way, can I tell you this? When he heard about all that went on at church that day, you know how he should have responded. I'm talking about the old black, black sin preacher. You know how he should have rep responded with repentance? When he heard about what that young boy from the south had come up there and done, that old man should have wiggled his way to the altar and got right with God for sitting at home when that young guy, God had to reach down south, get somebody out of the bullpen, come up there and finish the, the bottom of the ninth. The old man should have been up there, and he should have responded but said, Oh, God, I should have been up there. I'm sorry. And he should have responded with repentance, but he didn't respond with repentance. He responded with resentment. Hey, go get the car. I'm going after the And what did he do? He tore off after this young man of God. And he says to this young man of God, Hey, hey, preacher, I am like you are. I just want you to know, hey, we're both God-called prophets. I want you to come home. And I want you to eat bread and drink water. And the true man of God said, Nuh-uh. That's in the Hebrew. Nuh-uh. Nuh-uh. He said, I can't go home. He said, God told me not to eat bread nor drink water with anybody up here, not to have anything to do with the whole thing. Just get out of here after I preach. And the man of God said, Now look. And he, and he gives him some cock and bull story about some angel appearing to him. And he said, Hey, I was at home and an angel came to me and told me it was okay. It was all right. If you want to come home and eat bread, drink water with me, it's okay. The angel told me to tell you that. But if you'll look there at verse 18, we're, we're plainly told, but he lied unto him. Does this not bother y'all just a little bit? Am I the only one this bothers just a little bit? 
I mean, a preacher lying. I mean, what in the world's going on here? He lied unto him. And guess what? The man of God fell for it. You know, the one thing I learned from this text is this. I learned that if God has something to say to you, he'll say it to you and not somebody else. Can I have an amen? Hey, don't come up to me and say, hey, preacher, God told me to tell you because I'm going to probably say, well, thank you so much. Pray for me. I'm going to go see what God says to me about it. If God has something to tell us, tell you, tell me, he'll tell me and not tell you so you can tell me. <laughs> and that old, that old prophet, that old backslidden preacher, I said, hey, an angel told me to come home, told me to tell you, it's okay. Look, man, you're wore out. It's been a long day. Man, what a service. I heard about it. Hey, by the way, come on back. I can tell you some stories about how things were in the good old days. Man, when the power of God was real. Real? <laughs> it couldn't have been much realer than it was that day. Hey, come on home with me. Let me tell you about the good old days. Let's have some bread and water and fellowship. Oh, no. And the young prophet with such potential listens to that cock and bull story and goes home with him. And he eats bread and he drinks water. And then it comes time for him to go home. And off in the distance as he gets on his donkey, starts home to the south. Rawr! There's a lion roaring off in the distance that's going to take the life of the young prophet because he disobeyed the word of the Lord. Oh, my goodness. Can I tell you really what I take away from this story? Here's what I get. You say, preacher, explain. Explainify that one to us. Here's the only thing I know to come up with. Why did God do that to that young preacher? Here's the only thing I'd come up with. God says, I love that boy. That boy's got some gall about him. I appreciate him going up there that day and looking that king in the face and just preaching, preaching against all this mess going on up here. I tell you what, I love that boy. I don't want him to be like that old backslid preacher, that old backslid prophet that lies. So I think what I'm going to do is before he messes up, I'm just going to call him on home to heaven so he won't mess up like that other one did. I'm just going to call him up, on, up here at the heaven and God just took him home. Watch this. Here's what I really get from this story. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he sins we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Lost his life because he didn't obey. It don't bother me as much now as it used to. I get it. God took him home to heaven 
because he didn't obey the Lord. I'm telling you, we better obey God. Nothing but good things happen when we obey God. But let me tell you something. You walk out of this room tonight and, and, and oh, being disobedient to the Lord, when you head up the road, side of 52, listen. Rawr. When you go to bed tonight, outside of your bedroom window, Rawr. be careful. Trust and obey. Let's pray. Father.